Hi everyone, what's your highlight of the week? Thank you for joining us again tonight. This is MIT podcast. MIT stands for Mindset into Transformation. I'm Benjamin Huang, your host tonight. Here we have conversation with people who have done extraordinary things in their life, how their mindset shift to help them achieve it. We discuss their story of success and the mindset that drive them into achieving the impossible. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. Today, I have a special guest coming to our studio, Drew. Drew is an outstanding multifamily or commercial real estate investor, doing great, you know, investing journeys. And there's a lot of experience, expertise that he has to share with us, not only from an investor perspective, but also his insight on the market and how you see real estate trend. You know, I hope those value that we are creating today will help you make the right decisions, you know, jump on the right investment strategy and things like that. Thanks again for coming to our show, my friends. How are you doing? Thanks, Benjamin. Good, good. Thanks for having me on. And, um, you know, it was, it was fun to meet you recently. And, and uh, thank you for following up with an invitation here. I'm excited to be here. Drew, when I just met you at the conference, our initial conversations, you know, really hit me because I learned that you have not only focused on one asset, but also all the others. So, I mean, you know, I would say most of the other syndicators or most of the investor, they usually focus on one asset class specifically. And you being, you know, investing in in the broad range of um, real estate, I would really uh, appreciate your insights and advice, especially to our audience here um, on, on this podcast. So thanks for coming to our show. Absolutely. True. To get started, let's give a quick background uh, introduction to yourself and like how did you get started into real estate? If you have a previous career, what was it and what bring you to real estate? Sure. Yeah. Uh, currently, uh, I'm the VP of Investor Relations here at MAG Capital Partners. So we're a boutique investment shop. There's about 15 of us on the team. So uh, certainly did not start the, the firm myself. And my personal journey goes back to about 2011, right? I started investing in real estate back then. Um, and at first, it was really uh, buying a home, living in it, fixing it up. Um, and at that time was a great time to buy, of course. So um, I won't credit myself with all my uh, um, flipping skills. That wasn't it at all. But I saw the tax advantages um, around uh, purchasing real estate and being able to live in it for a couple of years and being able to fix it and essentially flip it, but sell and move to another house and take up to a half million dollars in capital gains tax-free. So that's a, an amazing tool. Um, but it's not for, you know, it's, it's for the right person in the right time in their life, right? Who wants to constantly have construction around them and not have a, a comfortable place to live because there's dust and construction and yeah. all those things. And I just took them one project at a time, right? I would do one room here, one room there, just kind of continue through it. So that was, you know, uh, over 10 years ago and I was, uh, you know, had more time and the skills and, and tools to do it, um, you know things change over your life. And today I'm not that person, right? I don't want to spend my time fixing up a house. So that happened a couple times, right? And, and I saw, hey, there's a lot of um, value here. And I got to the point where I said, I, I have a lot of gains here that I could start to uh, unfold this into several, three, four single family home investments and hold them as long-term rentals. And frankly, I didn't want to do that. 
I didn't want to manage it. I didn't want to deal with tenants. I didn't want to deal with a property management company even. And I really had some exposure to the passive investment side from my brother. He was working for an investment firm that really was a, a capital raising organization that would partner with operators. You know, you see a lot of these folks and they're great at what they do. They partner with a small group of operators that they trust and have a relationship and bring investors those opportunities. So he had really said, hey, you know, let me introduce you to you know a few of these operators. And I started to invest as an LP, a passive investor in what we, you know, is commonly known as syndications. So I uh, started investing that way. And one of those early sponsors was Mag Capital Partners. So got to know the company really was drawn to the strategy and the niche that uh, Mag Capital Partners has and had a relationship with the tenants, or excuse me, the tenants, the uh, principals through my brother and had an introduction there and later on joined the team in 2019. So I've been here for a few years now, really expanding our capital raising side as we continue to be a, a great operational company, but really needed some expansion on the capital raising side, right? Uh, continue yep. to expand the network of investors and bring those opportunities. And that was something I was excited to do in 2019. I said, hey, I, I'm so drawn to this. I'm so attracted to this investment type. Why isn't everyone in this, right? This is something that I know resonates with people. Uh, I would be happy to bring this out. And it's, you know, I was exactly right when I talked to investors about it. And like you said, hey, we spoke for a little bit. You said, wow, this is really interesting. And um, it, it rang true with you. And uh, not every investment is perfect for every person, but a lot of people who like passive investments, who are looking for cash flow, appreciation, uh, tax benefits, all those things that they want to get while staying passive as a limited partner and leveraging someone else's experience, this really fits into that. And, you know, at least it's a, a great portion of someone's portfolio, um, you know, what we bring to investors. So it's, you know, it's, we've had a lot of success um, great team around us. You know, we're all really passionate about what we do. So that's a little bit of my background. So I continue to invest passively with other sponsors, mm -hmm. but I put a lot of my money also with our own uh, deals, right? So I'm still, you know, I was investing with our deals before I joined the team and I still am today. And it's, it's a, you know, it's really fun to be able to bring uh, opportunities to investors. And, and I tell them, hey, you know, I can't invest in every deal, but here and there, I, hey, I have some liquid capital. I put some money in awesome. here. Come join us. Come join me. And the way we feel about it is that this, as a team, this is where we're focusing our real estate investments. These are really mad capital partners, the principals, the team. We're putting our money here. Come join us if you'd like. If this makes sense to you and it's a good fit, um, come join us. And we're not a, um, in other words, we're not a fee generating organization. Exactly. This is where we're investing and we invite others to join us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, if you're listening and you're a limited partner or you're an investor, right, invest in the deal that you see the operators are putting their own monies in, right? That basically means they have some, some sort of faith and they really think the deal is a good deal. Otherwise, they wouldn't put their own money at risk, right? Great hint. Yeah. And, and just to add to that, there's a little, you know, there's about, a, I would say a 5% co-investment is at least a kind of a minimum rule of thumb. That's how I see it at least, right? If a sponsor tells me they're putting in less than 5%, you know, I, I'm going to think about that a little bit. I'm going to say, well, maybe if it's a really big deal, you go, well, you know, two and a half percent, it turns out it's a huge deal and it's a lot of money. Okay. They have some skin in the game here. Um, but What's really interesting is, you know, I tell people all the time, I go, hey, this deal, you know, we have a couple of credit analysts that are on our team. You know, they have no obligation whatsoever to invest their own capital, but they do. 
they look at this very closely. We're all very close to the deal. And they say, hey, I really like this. I'm putting my own money in. $50,000 I'm going to hold in, in equity in this deal because I really like what I see here. So that's a great tell, right? Because yeah. a spon- a, a, the principles of a sponsor group need to, right? That's just, right. again, that's an uh, almost an obligation you have to your investors. If you're going to use other people's money, you need to put your money right alongside them. But it's really icing on the cake when you hear, hey, some people on the team who don't need to are anyway. There are a lot of operators in the space and people are doing things differently. Of course, we are coming to an interesting time that um, the market may help us differentiate, you know, the, those two type of operator, right? There are operator that coming after the fee. There are operator really creating value and solving investor problems. You know, you being an experienced investor and you also know the space very well, what would you advise other potential limited partners to look after other than, you know, seeing if the general partners are putting their own money into the deal? Sure. Yeah. If you're a limited partner, you're evaluating deals today. Um, you know, there's there's some through lines that you're going to look at regardless of the state of the economy, right? Strong economy, a weak economy. You're always going to look at the tra- track record of the sponsor. Who are these guys? I want to know that, um, you know, I've, I see some other investors and maybe I can connect with some other folks who would have invested with them. And really, again, just kind of verify, hey, these guys are, um, you know, legitimate, right? And that they have a track record right. um, that really shows uh, success over time. And, you know, I think a lot of people's worry today is, hey, we've had a really great real estate market for about 10 years. You know, everyone seems to be able to throw money anywhere and make money. You know, that that's that can be a little unsettling when you start to look forward and go, hey, are, are some of these operators really going to get exposed? Um, and I think you can avoid some of that, right, by really looking at a deal. And uh, I mean, really something that I've always paid a lot of attention to, and I think it's more important now, though, than ever is debt. When I look at a deal, I always want to know what's the term of the debt? What's the rate structure? I want to know all these things because that's where you can find yourself in a bind. And we're seeing interest rates continue to rise. It's actually the most rapid increase in interest rates from the Fed ever. Not the highest, but the most rapid increase over the last um, well year to date. Yeah, absolutely. So it's 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 wild, right? It's it's a very you know we're seeing it on our side. We're trying to adjust as quickly as the Fed is changing rates and the banks are and everything there too. But uh, if I'm looking at a deal from a sponsor, I want to know again what's the term, Um, and if it's two year term, you know I'm going to look a little more carefully. You know what's the plan here in two years? What kind of risks am I looking at? You know if I have interest rates that are you know. 25, 30, 50% higher than today, then that could be a real issue in two years. So, and it might not be, right? I don't, there's always exceptions. So you might look at two years and say, hey, there's a very a high degree of certainty around increased revenue from this property. So maybe they do run into higher rates here in two years, right? Or, uh, you know, hopefully not forced to sell, but maybe that is something that's likely here, but they can withstand that because the business plan around uh, increases in revenues is, you know, there's a lot of meat on that bone and I feel pretty strongly that this operator can do that. So that might mitigate that risk, but that's a great place to start. Um, You know, I like, you know, just to turn this to how we invest, uh, a lot of the industrial real estate properties that we're investing in, we have long-term leases on. And I really enjoy that because the lenders 
see a lot of security there and they give us longer terms. So a lot of the the debt we use is seven year term, 10 year term, right? Because they say, look, you have a 15 or 20 year lease. We'll give you a long set of term here because we have a lot of security around that rent coming in. Um, so that's really nice to have. And that's how, you know, we've sort of structuring or, or positioning ourselves, I should say, going into, you know, potentially another 12 months, 24 months of kind of a depressed asset value environment, as long as interest rates are really high, right? So we can continue to hold through that and not have our back against the wall with a yeah. uh, term that has come due, where you now have, you know, you're stuck between two horrible options, right? Selling an asset in a low value environment or refinancing in a high interest environment. So you don't want to be there. We use fixed rate uh, financing and you know, you can use a floating rate and a lot right. of people are purchasing caps. What I would say is the caps that yeah. you'll see and, and just so for your audience so they know what that is, is sometimes people use debt with a floating interest rate and they will pay a fee to the bank and say, look, we want to cap out right. our interest rate. So even if it goes up, 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 it's going to okay. cap out at 6%, percent we will say, or 7 or 8%, whatever that might be. It won't go any higher than this. And we're willing to pay you X amount of dollars to sort of have that security. Now that's okay. It gives you security, but honestly, the, those rate caps are very expensive. Uh, so know. what you get yeah. is at least some certainty in your underwriting. And I think there's something to say for that, right? Everyone can sleep well at night um, and yeah. kind of know, hey, I'm not going to run into a extreme risk where I'm underwater on this thing, where I'm cash flow negative and eating away at reserves and potentially... Um, you know, needing a capital call or feed more money into this. So right. having that, even though it's expensive, it, you know, it may be worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, like go, going through the uh, the market fluctuation or the, the uh, interest rate fluctuation, you know, those cap does provide, you know, sense of, you know, security. And like you said, the cap are extremely expensive right now. There are people who I just talked to was telling me just the cap is now worth millions. Right. Yep. So it's it's we're we're really living in a, in a crazy time. So in in this uh like real estate you know cycles when we're seeing the compressions on the uh, real estate value, how do you do the underwriting? You know, I mean, how do you know a certain margin is enough, right? And of course, you mentioned about the exit strategy, you know, uh, type of turn or type of you know, the rate and things like that. If you were the one doing the uh, underwriting, what, what would you budget or what would you, you know, cushion yourself? Yeah, I guess it depends on what asset class, what type, right? Um, you know, and all... Say it's, it's multifamily. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, really, I think it's going to depend a little bit on the market too. Um, if you're in a very, you know, primary bulletproof market, um, you're going to probably pay a premium for that market, um, and you're going to see uh, a much higher um, uh, or lower, I should say, downside, right? right. Um, you're, I, I think really if, if cap rates erode quite a bit, it's not going to erode in um, you know, Los Angeles uh, you know, area or Orange County. Some of those um, – you know, Phoenix has come back a little bit. It's, it's really it, – <laughs> I mean, I could get into markets for a while, but some of those markets that have been strong historically um, are, you know, coastal areas, right? I mean, everyone wants to live close to the water. So some of those markets um, are going to, they're going to resist that a bit more, but you're going to pay a premium for right. it. So, um, 
you know, I know it's kind of a broad question to ask about how much cushion you have there, but it's a difficult yeah, question. You, you yeah. really have to look at, um, hey, what's a reasonable vacancy rate here? Um, okay. You know, and I think that's, again, really just going to be market dependent. You know, right. if you're in an area that could potentially see, you know, a 10% pullback, okay, I'm at 98% occupancy. That's great. You know, where's my break even here? Um, you know, can I drop down to, 80%, what happens then? 70%. So you need that sensitivity analysis. And that's another, just again, a tip to you know limited partners who want to invest passively. Ask the sponsor for a sensitivity analysis. Really get a feel for what risk am I taking on, right? There's always risk. And it's just good to understand it, right? And if it makes you cringe, you may want to run it past you know, someone else and say, hey, does this seem reasonable? This seems like we don't have a lot of uh, wiggle room, right? <laughs> this right, looks right. like we may be in trouble um, if we just have a hit a couple speed bumps. Mm-hmm. And you know, at that point, I think it's good to bounce off someone else or just say no, right? If you're not comfortable with the deal, there's a lot out there. Um, so that's always my advice to people: is you know, feel free to say no. Some I've heard someone coin the term um, having JOMO, which is the joy of missing out, um, because why force yourself into this? And if you're looking for, you know, if you say, I don't have the exposure to that many deals, that's something you can build. Uh, you can find a lot of investor groups out there mm-hmm. uh, just by searching around online, you know, syndicator uh, and LP investor groups where people have whole forums and they discuss sponsors and really you can start to open up your world. And there's a lot of options out there. Um, it could be a little overwhelming, but if you feel like, hey, I'm not seeing enough options here and I feel like I need to jump into one of these, mm-hmm. stop. Uh, yeah. Unless you feel really comfortable. And if you don't, that's when you, you can start expanding your network and uh, before you make a decision. Right, right, right. So uh, your advice is basically expand your potential deal floor and until you see a very comfortable deal, and your team also tell you this is a great deal, then you pull trigger. Otherwise, don't, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's quite a bit out there. And the more time you sort of immerse yourself in this industry, you know, again, even as a limited partner, passive investor, I mean, at one point when I first started investing, I felt like I had, you know, a hand, small handful of sort of sponsors that I was introduced to. And to be honest, I kind of jumped in the first deal I invested in as an LP. Um, I didn't fully understand, right? I mean, this is a long time ago, yeah. and I've come a long way in my investing experience. And it's it's funny, really underperformed uh, from the cash flow perspective, right? And so you go, well, you know, that's because I, I didn't spend a lot of time and didn't understand what I was kind of getting into. And it, you know, it, looking back now, if I saw that deal again, I probably would have passed on it. Right. Um, but that was a little bit due to my limited scope of opportunities, right? I was really anxious. I wanted to jump in. So um, again, you know, for whatever it's worth for your invest, uh, for your listeners, anyone who's looking to invest passively, um, I know it's exciting. I know you're eager to get it out there and, you know, and go through the process and start seeing cash flow and just see an ACH transfer hit your account every month or every quarter. It's great. It's awesome. Um, but don't rush it. Right. Really. Um, you don't need to. There's a lot of opportunities. And when you zoom out across five, 10 or more years, you're going to say, hey, what's waiting, you know, a, a few months, six months. You know, I, I know some people go pretty long with their research phase. Don't go too long. You should, eventually you want to take, take action. some action. But yeah, yeah exactly. It's a delicate balance, right? Don't rush it, but take action. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what the right answer there is. But, um, it's but a again, balance. if you anything... Yeah, exactly. Anything's making you feel uncomfortable, just say no. Awesome. Drew, when we were speaking 
uh, you mentioned that you have a lot of great story about you know uh, taking deals or you know battling with other people's um, deals. Can you share one to us, and then we'll get into like general like market trend and things like that. Sure. Uh, yeah. I'll you know something that has to do with kind of current environment today. We have a joint venture with a large institutional partner, right? They're bringing a, a large amount of equity to um, some larger acquisitions, right? So uh, completely separate than the deals that we offer to our passive investors that we syndicate out there. This is a different execution with an institutional partner. So what happened recently was we had a a large deal um, in the sort of New York, New Jersey area. I'm going to try to keep it general yep. here because I can't talk too much in specifics. But um, we had a, a deal that we brought to this JV partner, and it was a pretty good size. It was, you know, about $35 million acquisition, which for us is, um, you know, it's it's healthy, right? We do a lot in the sort of 10 to $20 million range. So this is a little larger. And so we brought it to them, and, and they liked it. And really, the institutional partner... Uh, as rates were changing, uh, and they love this deal, by the way, but they go, oh, okay, we have this lender and we have, you know, a, an exclusive sort of written out agreement with them and they have some debt yield requirements. And I don't want to get too granular for your listeners, but um, essentially as rates are changing, they said, well, uh, even though they had sent in a letter of intent to the seller and the broker, you know, had, had accepted it on behalf of the seller, they wanted to come in and retrade the deal. They wanted to say, hey, we need to, you know, adjust the cap rate. And this was a sale leaseback of a uh, single tenant industrial property. And the broker, you know, pretty much flipped his lid, right? They said, hey, uh, I can't believe you would take me all the way down this road and then try to retrade me. And, you know, mm -hmm. there was some validity to it, but uh, the broker and the seller wanted nothing to do with it. They said, look, you know, you need to execute or otherwise we're going to go market this so, again. You know, we're giving oh, you an opportunity for a great piece of real estate and now you're screwing with us. And guess what? Uh, we'll have a line of buyers somewhere else. So for us, we were involved here and we had a relationship with a broker. And so what we did essentially was we said, look, to the, the JV partner, we said, look, we're going to we're going to take this one on, you know, the broker's not going to accept, the seller's not going to accept your retrading here. Um, and so we jumped in and we took the property with the partnership of our limited partners. And it was a great one. And, you know, that institutional group, they were not, not exceptionally uh, happy that they missed out on this, right? It was a great deal. We got it for a cap rate, probably 75 mm -hmm. basis points higher than really where it would be. So a really good oh. entry point. And what the seller needed was someone who could execute and do what they said they would do. And so it was a it was a great kind of interesting to see how some larger institutional groups can be too big of a ship. They can't turn very quickly. And again, like we mentioned, the rates are moving very quickly. So for them, they couldn't keep up with that at that time. Yeah. They had too much of a rigid relationship with a lending partner. It's kind of surprising, right? You yeah. think, hey, these guys must have plenty of options. Yeah. And they just had too much contractual binding um, uh, agreements here, at least with the lender here, to uh, jump ship yeah. um, or, or to change horses, if you will. So um, that being said, we came in, we were nimble enough to say, hey, we can bring in the capital, we can close on this deal, still in the same timeline that we have. And instead of this, you know, 
this special purpose vehicle, this LLC mm-hmm. with a joint venture. We have another vehicle here. We're going to take it down with. And those limited partners that joined us um, got to participate in a really fantastic piece of real estate, industrial real estate, you know, less than 15 miles from New York City, wow. from Manhattan. I mean, that's great. That's what you want is I want industrial real estate that's serving one of these infill areas because there's just nowhere to build. So having yeah. industrial real estate right around some of these primary metros is a great Best great play. Um, and that's sort of that, you know, bulletproof market again where there's there's always going to be quite a bit of demand to serve a really high density population. Yeah, yeah. So investor or I mean institutional, you know, the buyer, they may not be as resourceful as, as we thought. Right. So that's kind of a encouragement for, you know, Many operator out there, right? If you think that you're you're competing with, you know, uh, Wall Street uh, peoples and are kind of hopeless, you know, don't don't be and, and still like pursue if it's, if the deal works, right? And if you can still close on a deal. Yeah, you're not going to be able to compete on cap rate alone, but what you can compete on is you know time to close. Um, you can. Uh, you know, get creative when it comes to other hurdles that sort of um, cause institutional groups to hesitate or trip. Um, you know, right. sometimes we run into industrial properties that have, you know, a little bit of um, some hair around the environmental, right? And we don't want to take on a bunch of environmental risk, but mm-hmm. we're, we can dig in and we can find ways to box out that risk. Maybe it's additional environmental insurance policy right. when that's triple net lease guess who's paying for that? The tenant, tenant, right? So, you know, and all that is going to take a little bit of, uh, you know, negotiating and everyone has to come together on that. But that's a way you can get the deal done when, you know, an institutional group might say, uh, you know, we just sort of have this rigid criteria and we're sort of passing because we don't want to even look into this. And, you know, real estate's such a funny investment area. I mean, really, if you can yin when other people yang um you can kind of zig when other people zag i should yeah. say uh that's that's a great place to find opportunities and especially when you're talking about a property that typically would be competed against uh institutions right. for um, because yeah if it's simple down the middle guess what their cost of capital is lower than yours you know they have the relationships they have the size uh, they can do this for and and make a higher margin than you can but if you can find um, ways to be more nimble, then that's where some of the opportunities are. Awesome. Um, sounds like risk management is basically something that you can, you know, uh, control, right? Don't just walk away if there's risk, right? Look at whether the risk can be managed or not, right? Like triple net is a great way to to manage the risk, right? So Drew, that's, um, let's dive a little deeper on the triple net. What does triple net means and what does it do for many of our listeners that don't understand, like what's a good and bad about it? Yeah, triple net leases, um, you'll see it written out as NNN sometimes. So just so you know, if you're seeing that capital NNN, what is that, right? Uh, that's triple net. And what that's saying is that the uh, landlord has responsibilities generally in, in any um, property, right? But in this case, they're net, 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 net three items, insurance, property taxes, and utilities. So all those fall onto the responsibility of the tenant. 
Now we go a little bit further than that, right? That's just three items. Well, there's a lot of other items to manage on a property, right? Who's right. managing the landscaping, right? Who's paying for that? You know, there's trees and bushes that need to be trimmed and that sort of thing. So, you know, what our gold standard really is, is an absolute triple net lease. So we take it further and we say, everything is going to be the responsibility of this tenant. We'll have a long-term lease and they're not only responsible for those three items I mentioned, but also, you know, the roof, and structure, HVAC systems, Everything. Uh, pay, mm-hmm. who's paving the parking lot? You know, this is a 20-year lease. We might have a parking lot that looks okay, but it's a little bit older. Hey, in, in 10 years, this thing might need to be repaved. So who's going to be responsible for that? It's going to be the tenant. And they trade, you know, and this is just more common in, in single-tenant properties, especially industrial, even retail properties you'll see in, in shopping centers. Uh, I mean, it's hard to tell from just a, a consumer who goes to a shopping center, but that tenant that um you know hobby lobby or whatever store they might be on a triple net lease as well maybe not absolute triple net but triple net where they're taking care of their portion of the um, property taxes and all that so uh, really it it creates a very passive very smooth and steady investment for an investor like us so we enjoy that because after we close on a property with a long-term lease absolute triple net it's a little bit on cruise control Right. I don't need to manage all these expenses. I don't need to um, consistently, especially when you have a, a long-term right. lease and a single tenant, right? You go, well, I'm not filling vacancies. I'm not doing rehab. It's very much set it and forget it. You know, People call triple net lease properties mailbox money for a reason. Um, you don't have to do a lot there. So, uh, And what yeah. that does for investors, and this is really important today, is not only that predictability of cash flow, I know exactly what I'm going to get and I know my expenses are zero, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So that's a very nice place to be. So I know what I'm going to get. And you know, if I have a single tenant, triple net lease property, I'm not going to see an upside in cash flow, right? It's not like I'm going to be able to create more, you know, they're on a long-term lease cool. and this is, mm-hmm. you know, what we like. There's not an upside in cash flow. I can't create more revenue you know, next month than I did this month. However, there's a very high degree of certainty. So if you want consistent, steady right. cash flow, absolutely. And those leases that we have, I mean, they do have annual rent increases built in, but you're not going to exceed what's baked into that long-term lease. Um, but going back to the the term there, the, the triple net or absolute triple net term, what you get in this environment is protection from inflation. So, hey, I have these baked mm-hmm. in rent increases and you know, maybe they feel small to you, right? Two or three percent is pretty uh, standard in the industry. And sometimes, uh, you know, I've had many people ask about that. Hey, I, you know, we're seeing inflation. CPI alone says eight or nine percent, uh, and we're seeing rents in a market. Let's just say a multifamily, um, you know, in one particular market going up fifteen percent. So, aren't you lagging Mind behind? Yeah. And what I'm always quick to remind people is, I go, look, if you're operating that property, you're also seeing an inflation on the yeah, expense yeah. side. So, I don't care what the rise in uh, rent is as an investor. I care what the rise in net operating income is. So for a triple net, 15. yeah, exactly. What's free cash flow? Because great, your rents went up. What else went up? What other expenses did you incur? Um, and guess what? Your very consistent True. stuff like taxes, that's going to get reassessed in a lot of states as everything comes up. That rising the, tide the profit, of inflation basically. is going to bring a lot of stuff up, including property insurance. They're going to look at replacement costs. 
they're going to say, well, this used to be, you know, $10 million replacement. Now it's like looking like 12, per, uh, $12 million, right? We're going to adjust our premiums to reflect that. So all those items are going to go up. Um, even if you're the best manager in the world, there's, these things are just out of your control. Again, that rising tide of inflation, is going to bring things up. Your landscaper, he's got to feed his family. Um, he's going to say, look, I need more money, right? Every, the cost of my groceries has gone up. So all this is going to come up. Right. If you have a gross leased property, like a um, a multifamily property. So in this case, I have absolute triple net. All of that is falling on the tenant. So what I know for a fact is yeah, this true. increase in rent is actually an increase in net operating income. So 2 or 3% increases in net operating income where, again, we'll take multifamily. And there's nothing wrong with multifamily, but you really have to make sure that your operator is outpacing the rise in expenses with rise in rents. And that, um, you know, I've talked to several operators recently where they say, hey, you know, right. I feel like I'm spinning my wheels sometimes because I do a bunch of work, I get rents up, and then, bam, you get hammered with a, you know, reassessment Inflation. and property yeah. taxes go up and insurance premiums, all those things. And now it's like, it's just eroding all of this work that they've been doing to raise rent. So um, all the value add are being eat away. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, as long as you can outpace that, you're fine. But yeah, you know, 15% in, uh, increase in rents does not necessarily mean that increase in NOI. So that's an important thing to look at. Why would people sign the absolute uh, triple net? Yeah, it's going to be a trade-off, right? Yes. Um, it's really for lower rent. Um, you know, we're talking about rents anywhere from, you know, three or four bucks kind of on the low end to maybe $10 a foot per year. Um, at these, you know, industrial properties, right? It can be a little lower when you get kind of a little more tertiary, of course. But um, that's that's what you're looking at, and it would be much higher if it wasn't triple net lease. So it's a trade-off. Um, a a tenant's going to say, "Hey, I'm getting lower rent. I'm taking on this responsibility, but my rent expense is lower. I'll take that trade-off." And, and an owner says, "Hey, this might end up around the same. You know, me managing expenses." Um, versus, you know, and getting higher rent versus not managing expenses, getting a lower rent. That might be an even trade-off. But for us, we like that quite a bit. We're able to close on a property and continue to scale without getting uh, sort of caught in the weeds and the, the granular details of the management of a property, right? And and again, taking that operational risk where, hey, we had a good quarter, we had a bad quarter, you know, it just sort of depends on what's happening uh, from an expense side of the property or capital expenditures, you know, big repairs that need to get done. And you could build reserves for all this, but again, even the best operators can get unlucky sometimes right hey exactly. we thought this roof was good for another 10 years you know it's been a few years and we got some major repairs to do already so some of those things um uh, you know you again we're insulating ourselves from that um, so that's i always kind of laugh like you know you could structure any lease anyway and i always kind of laugh at the idea of what if you could do a single family home lease triple net right yes i was going to <laughs> ask absolute triple net Right, right. Hey, normal rent for this home would be $2,500. But, you know, we're going to rent this to you for $1,500. But you're going to be responsible for taxes, insurance, uh, mowing the lawn, um, you know, all the, all those things, right, that um, you would never be, you know, hey, the water heater broke, that's on you, tenant, you know, so, you know, that's just a trade off that's not common in the single family mm -hmm. home environment. So no one would go for it. But it's very common when you're talking about commercial real estate. Right. Um, there's there's a crazy idea that uh, came to me just the other day. What if I acquire a, a multifamily apartment complex and say I 
triple netted to an operator yep. or triple net that to a, a property manager. A master or, lease. Exactly. Yep. And basically it's hands off for me and basically they need to work on the property, right? Does that exist? Yeah, it could be a property management company that says, "Hey, you know, we're we're going to do our, you know, underwriting here and and maybe for you you say I'm very happy with that." And for for them, they can take on that operational risk cuz they're comfortable with that and maybe you aren't, right? Um I haven't heard of someone doing that, but I have thought about that as well. And you kind of go, well, you know, you can be creative. And if you have some relationships with someone who feels comfortable, you know, it's just going to be a, you know, it's a, it's a partnership right. there, right? You're going to say, Hey, we all have to feel like we're, we're getting what we deserve here. And maybe you take a little bit less, um, you know, return on that for, uh, but, you know, it's just going to depend, right? You're going to have to cut that up a little bit. And they're going to say, look, I'm going to get my property, man, you know, what I would get here. But for the additional risk, I'm also going to need a little bit more. Um, and that would be that would make sense. So trade off, right? Hey, I'm going to push away some risk and also, you know, diminish my return potential by a little bit. But if I want steady cash flow, if I want to ensure that I'm going to see, you know, whatever return I, I can sort of project over 10 years, maybe that's great. But who's guaranteeing that lease? Now, this is where we spend a lot of time, right? Single yeah, right. tenant manufacturing company or third-party logistics company. These are a lot of the tenants we deal with. So we spend a lot of time looking at their financials. Now, you might say, okay, I'm doing this with a property management company. Who are they, right? Maybe they're you know a little bit mom and pop. Strong. I, I, I wouldn't do that deal, right. <laughs> right? I'd say, you know, unless you felt very comfortable, hey, they defaulted, I can come in and start managing the property. But if you have a very established property management company, there are many like this. You might say, hey, these guys are, you know, they're doing, you know, $10 million in revenue a year um, in property management work. Uh, you know, they have a corporate guarantee on this master lease. Okay, I feel pretty good about it, right? They're well-established. They know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I don't feel like they're going to, you know, fall apart on this thing. And I'm not going to inherit some property that they've neglected. And now they're, you know, filed for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And now I'm retaking uh, management control of the property that I own with a bunch of issues. So anyway, it would be interesting. If you ever run into that, let me know. I'd be interested to see how that works. Sounds good. Sounds good. I've been thinking about those uh, creative strategies, especially in the, in the in the current market, right? I mean, a lot of you know uncertainties are are going around, so I think people are uh, starting to get a lot, you know, being very creative. I noticed that uh, you know there are a lot of investment opportunity out there, and maybe with your firm, maybe with your team, how can people find you and find those opportunities? Yeah, you can reach out to me directly if you're interested in learning more. Um, again, we do a lot of industrial real estate. We do some multifamily investments. We do some even retail triple net lease opportunities and, and some development as well. So that all being said, if you're interested in learning more and, and just kind of hearing about our track record and what we're doing, uh, you can reach out to me directly. My email is drew, D-R-E-W, at magcp.com, like mag capital partners, magcp.com. You know, feel free to reach out. I'm I'm pretty quick on the email. So awesome. You have social media or other uh thing to share? Sure. Yeah, you can go to mm -hmm. our Instagram, Mac Capital Partners. Um, on Instagram, we really just kind of post up news and you know, as as we close on properties, we continuously sort of uh share the the publications that report on, you know, business journal weeklies and things like that, just to sort of keep people up to date with what we've been active in. And I think you'll get a good feel for some of the investments we make. You know, you'll see a lot of boring looking industrial properties, and that's what we like. 
um, you know, very four walls and a roof yep. and a solid tenant who's going to be there for 20 years paying rent on a very consistent basis. Uh, we do a lot of work to find those and structure those. And once you close on them, again, they're, they're a cash flow machine. So feel free to reach out. I'm happy to tell you more. Awesome. Awesome, Drew. Um, last question for you. If a new investor want to get into commercial real estate and they want to play in the active role, what would you recommend them to do? Say if you were to restart, you know, you want to go into commercial real estate, what would you do? If you want to get a commercial, um, you know, I there's two camps here. Some people in in one camp says, you know, why start small? Just go big, yep. right? Just jump into the deep end. Um, I'm in the other camp. I think, look, um, start small, do something on your own or with a very close partner who you have a good relationship with and trust like a 50-50 JV on a, you know, you can find industrial real estate, for instance. I mean, I see them all the time in the, you know, 800000 to a million dollar price range. You know, these are, you know, as much or less than single family homes in a lot of markets, right? So, there's there's opportunities there and what i think is if you want to be active and eventually start to syndicate and bring on investment partners to tackle larger deals you really have to show a track record um no one's going to write a check with you um unless they just really unless it's your aunt or uncle and they just are doing you a favor but you know if you brought me a deal um you know and and you said hey i got this great one i'd say well, okay what mm-hmm. have you done Right. And if you had zero track record of anything that you have done, um, you know, I don't know who's going to invest with you. And so start doing some small ones. You know, you just that's all that people want to see is, hey, you know how to close, you know how to finance, you've been through it and you can scale over time. And that's how we did it as a firm. Right. We used to do a lot of, you know, between, you know, under five million dollar deals. Um, and now we're doing, you know, 15, 20, 35 million dollar deals and even larger. So you know, all that comes with that experience where investors gain your trust and they see your, uh, that and they say, wow, you're making money doing these acquisitions. How can I get involved? Right. I want to leverage your experience. I don't know how to do this. I don't want to do this, but you're clearly an experienced operator. I want to, you know, jump on your coattails here. And, and um, if, it, if it's a good partnership that makes sense, then, you know, that person will be with you for, for life. Awesome, true. I really appreciate you come to our show. You have offered way more value than I can ever imagine. I really appreciate you, Drew. Awesome. No, thank you for having me, and and good to hear. You know, anything I can bring from an educational standpoint, it's um, something I, I really enjoy. So appreciate having me, and we'll maybe we can do it again sometime on a slightly different subject. Yes, I was going to say that if you are willing, please come back to our, our show. Absolutely. Thanks, Benjamin. Thank you, Drew. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you for tuning in to MIT Podcast. A lot of value that uh, you have learned today. Make sure you take actions. Don't wait. Mm-hmm.